and welcome back to Play to Find Out. It's been a while. I've missed you guys. Yeah, a little bit too long. We had our live episode, and now we are back at it in our pre-recorded format. We are back in the in the fictional tavern, pulling up by the fire real close. It's a chilly one out there. It Much is. Much unlike, unlike the real world, where it's where just it blistering boiling outside. Hot. Yeah, just disgusting outside. It's bad. Like, we're I've, gonna I'm talk, in an area uh, that's pretty pretty nice right now, pretty on the cooler side, and I'm still suffering. I, I wore a long sleeve shirt today in just an act of defiance. I'm like the barbarian so cool. that wears um, furs, you know, even when they're in an adventure to hell. Very cool. Although I feel like at a certain point, furs are insulating enough that maybe you do want to be wearing them to avoid the fire. Maybe Willem Wellmet could take a page out of the barbarian playbook. I mean, I've, it's or, at least it's organic. Like I've heard that it, uh, it's better than nylon because if you get if you catch on fire wearing like nylon or something synthetic, it'll melt and stick to your skin. Oh, jeez, yikes! What an unpleasant idea. Well, speaking of unpleasantness. That, yeah, that was my sure. attempt at an Arthur segue. It, it was a good segue. Speaking of unpleasantness, I have a highlight from a recent game that I'd love to share. Please do. So this is not even remotely unpleasant. I had a really fun one-shot. Uh, one of those one-shots that might become a full campaign. We'll see. Um, and in that one-shot, I had two players. I had a wizard and a thief. And in their in-character, ooh, in their in-character backstory, they had been traveling together. The thief was tagging along the wizard as sort of a combination bodyguard and pilferer, and the wizard liked having the thief around just because it was safer. And the two of them arrived at this city at the beginning of our adventure. It was the two of them getting off of a ferry um, at a big city, sort of a Venice-esque, very gondolas-focused place. And the very first thing they did, before even going through customs or getting into the city proper, they saw a group of people clustering around a gnome. And this gnome is a recurring NPC that I love bringing into one-shots and, and campaigns. A little guy named Grief Jericho, who's sort of a treasure hunter, adventurer type. And he was showing to a crowd of beguiled onlookers this little golden thrush, with, uh, which was, as to anyone's eye, alive, except it was obviously also constructed of metal and functioning by clockwork. And... The two of them immediately understood exactly what this thrush is. It's the thing that they're going to spend the adventure retrieving. This is a one shot where we hadn't really talked about what kind of adventure we were going to have. And it really felt nice to just kind of settle into a rhythm about exactly what it was we would we would be carrying today. The wizard very excited about this strange magical creature. The thief excited because it looked valuable. And then we ended up having a really fun time exploring this weirdly bureaucratic Venice-esque uh, watery city, swimming into museums through underwater passages, um, thwarting and not and almost not thwarting assassination plots. It was a great time. I like I like sure. the fact that you were able to organically go into it and they'd be like, "Yep, that's what we want." Yeah, one of my goals as the GM for that session was to listen carefully to character backstories and try to tie them together in non-obvious ways. That was one of the things that I think I that I did well. That was one of the moments where I think I actually followed through on that goal. So I felt very, uh, very glad. I'm definitely uh, gearing, bracing myself and getting ready to try to do that going into our first uh, Invisible Sun session. Ooh. We just had character creation, but then there's going to be session one where everyone creates their neighborhood. I like one it. player, uh, a highlight that I, that I had was one player asked me um, if they could play as a cat. Um and I said, so you want to be someone who magically could transform themselves into a cat? And they're like, no, I want to actually be a cat. But like that gained sentience. I was like, okay. That sounds great. There's a cat. Uh, there's a cat NPC in my current ongoing campaign who is just like a delivery boy for a coven of witches wandering <laughs> around the city with little vials and spells and whatnot, Did dropping them off. Be a boy that nope, ran afoul nope. of this coven. Just a black cat. Gotcha. In the traditional witch's familiar sense. I like I kinda like that. Yeah. I'm gonna yeah. try to kind of let that be a flag post and, and have that um in, influence the aesthetic. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it would be really cool to describe the world as a cat perceives it when direct when addressing that player directly. Oh you know? yeah. That's actually a great point. That's um, really interesting. And I'd also definitely, you know, describe things from lower to the ground perspective. Yeah, ground, ground level and um, and the first thing that you, that you tell the player that they notice should always be something cats care about. If I were yeah. if I were to take a guess, probably like, oh, 
you're distracted suddenly by the trilling of a bird, and then you're back in the scene. You know, give that little bit of extra flavor. Man, I'm glad I glad I talked to you, Arthur. Yeah, me too. The um, speaking of something truly disgusting, though, we picked out a gross monster for our adventure workshop. Oh, for sure. So we're starting what I think we're calling the menagerie this week, where we go and pick a monster at random from the book and talk about the way that we would use it in our campaigns to further our goals as GMs, gross out our players, give them an adventure worth remembering. You know, the usual. Now, Eamon, shall I read from the book about the monster that we will be discussing today? Please do. The descriptions in the Dungeon World rulebook are great. Some of them I, I, I have often tried to get to the table somehow, like mm. that a, a player picks up like a discarded journal or something and it contains you know a little passage of text which is taken from that. Cause yeah, and I've been a fool and chosen something whose name I don't actually know the correct pronunciation of, so I'm going to take a crack at it and we will see how it goes. Today we will be discussing the Otyug. The mating call of the Otyug is a horrible, blaring cry that sounds like a cross between an elephant dying and an over-eager vulture. The Otyug spends most of its time partly submerged in filthy water and prefers eating garbage over any other food. As a result, it often grows fat and strong on the offal of orcs, goblins, and other cave-dwelling subhumans. Get too close, however, and you'll have one of its barbed tentacles dragging you into that soggy, razor-toothed maw. If you get away with your life, best get to a doctor, or your victory may be short-lived. Instinct. To be foul. And then we have the moves. Infect someone with filth fever, and fling someone or something. We, we were discussing slightly uh, off-air before we decided to get into the episode about how filth fever might manifest. Um, the first impression in my mind is that it it starts making your body just smell awful and you start sweating just thick, um, thick, viscous, foul-smelling sweat from your orifices that makes you look weak and lethargic and would just, you know, require a few a few hardy con, you know, defy mm-hmm. dangers to get back on your feet. But you were suggesting, Arthur, something slightly different. Yeah, for me, filth fever is not the... It's, <laughs> it's not something that poisons you or makes you toxic it's something that installs in you a fixation a fixation for trash to me filth fever like would be really really fun to play into as a possible engine for xp acquisition and in my game i think what i'd probably do is maybe introduce some particular tendencies to the character and give them the option of making choices that are difficult for the party in service of this fixation stuff like you know when you are encumbered with junk that serves no purpose other than weighing you down, mark XP. Uh, or specifically, when it interferes with the goals of the group, mark XP. Something <laughs> where the player can have a specific goal that is sort of at cross-purposes with the rest of the party as a way to advance their character and grow. And... That's just something that's permanent at that point. It's effectively a compendium class of filth fever. It's something that never goes away for the rest of that character's natural life. Assuming that they want to lean into it. And they can lean into it as much or as little as they want. But it's always there as an avenue for XP gain. This is sort of a... Yeah, sorry, go for it. I want a scene where the fighter is like just stuffing trash and refuse into their pack. And the ranger just like slaps it into their hands, like, come to your senses, man. <laughs> I don't have yeah. time for this. <laughs> for sure. And this idea of marking XP when you do something that's bad for the group is something that's in a lot of Power by the Apocalypse games, but I don't think Dungeon World really uses that much. But uh, Blades in the Dark actually has this as one of its core XP uh, yeah. growth tracks. You mark XP when, in the course of a mission, you leaned into your trauma in in a way that manifested as something bad for the group as a whole or bad for the mission i think that's a really good way to sort of make people play into their character's worst qualities reward good role play but not make it something that people will be unhappy with at, at the table because you know at a certain point we want to avoid my guy syndrome like oh my guy would be the sort of person to gather up every fork in this town you know okay why and this this way, we actually have a, a standard at the table for why that's okay and why that's something fun and exciting for us to support. <laughs> so yeah, filth fever. 
So here's some other cool stuff about the Otiug. Its weapons are tentacles, and it does D10 plus 3 damage, which is pretty big. Like that on yeah, a, pretty, on a bad beefy. roll, that can do half of most characters' health, I would say. You know, most characters, I feel like, end up in like the 18 to 26 range with uh, with their level 1 HP. And that doesn't grow that much over the course of a, of a campaign. So that's a pretty hefty... A pretty hefty hitter. We also have 20 hit points, which is, you know, more hit points than a dragon has. But also, the fictional positioning of an Otiog, I suppose, is such that you would be able to hurt it more easily than you would something that's flying around you at all times. Yeah, it's it's the type of thing where it's very hardy, like by nature, that it's the type of thing that you could like imagine cutting off a tentacle and it would still be sort of coming at you. So I think it makes sense that it's represented by a little bit more actual health than being, for sure. you know, very evasive. Have you seen the images for these things? Uh, I'm sure I have seen them before in my old days of browsing the monster manual, desperately wishing I could play Dungeons and Dragons with somebody. But I don't remember off the top of my head what they look like. So let me let me paint you a, a picture for the listeners as well. You've got these two front legs with um, sort of hoof-like toes coming out of them, sort of like a rhino would have, very thick, leading up to a a massive maw, just with lots of needle-like teeth just poking out of it. And this maw almost takes up its entire front half. Then its body sort of tapers in a lumpy fashion back to a single back leg, almost like you're riding a, a, a reverse tricycle. Um and this legs would sort of hop behind it. And then it has these two very, very thick tentacles on either side, kind of like the big tentacles that squid would have where they end in a sort of spade-like protrusion, except that these tentacles are sprouting even more teeth that presumably would just sort of slap at something or uses shovels to kind of scoop things into its mouth. And then it has a third and final tentacle that sprouts up from the middle of its back uh, between the other two. And this tentacle ends in just a sort of feathery end covered in eyes and that's where the eyes and the creature are so it's very unsettling to look at because where its head is its eyes aren't and then it has a tentacle that just contains those eyes so it could sort of look at you from odd angles you could like poke that thing through something and hitting at its head doesn't render it senseless like normal creatures might so yeah it's 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 really gross just google o-t-y-u-g-h and and go to images and you'll see uh many renditions of this thing and we're sorry that you're going to experience that because it is bad (laughs) but you know such is life we have to embrace the horrible in order to be good gms and good players yeah plus Um, these things eat trash that means in their guts is going to be all sorts of treasure for sure cut that thing open you know get in there find some gold that got discarded yeah i think a lot of times um something that is sometimes forgotten at the table is uh, that monsters like this specifically like can have loot. You know, even if they're not an intelligent monster who like had a magic item sitting in a chest somewhere, you can actually loot the corpse. And like there is guidance in the Dungeon World rulebook to roll, um, you know, on these like little random tables, and it kind of generates the loot for you. For sure. And the. The nice thing about something like this is that it's a great monster. It's a great back pocket monster, I feel like. You know, I don't think I've ever run a proper dungeon where there wasn't some sort of dank underbelly in which to, you know, in in which you escaped. You know, there's the classic trash compactor scene from the original Star Wars film. I think that an Otiog is a great thing to use in something like that. The daring escape through the through the the watery tunnels. Well, what what is down there in those weird those weird damp ways? Of course, it's this awful thing that just wants to eat garbage and infect you. That scene reeks of a tube, I might say. Yeah. You know what? Thinking about it, that's probably where Gygax and co. got the inspiration for the creature in the first place, isn't it? <laughs> it, it probably is. Huh. All right. So unless you've got something else, Eamon, I think that'll do it for Adventure Workshop Menagerie. Menagerie edition. Yeah. So we'll throw this guy back in the cage and move on to Metatalk. So, we have alluded many times on the show to the conflict that we're going to be talking through today. Yeah, this was a long time coming. This this is really it's been something that has been on my mind for ages. I think we talked about it during our our war versus sport combat episode. 
We've talked about it in the context of social situations. And I think it's time for us to finally hash out how we feel about the concept, the conflict of player skill versus character skill. Where do we draw the line? What do we treat as valuable at the table? What do we not? I think I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I've got some opinions that are starting to form. So, Eamon, I want to hear what you have to say on the subject. So, for those who are sort of walking into this debate, basically the concept is this. Um, in any RPG, your character is not yourself, and if your character is yourself in some capacity, that would be considered a LARP at least by people that are interested in categorizing these sorts of things. Um, and this numbers on your sheet are representing skills and capacities that your character has that you don't necessarily share. And where this comes uh, is most obvious is in physical stats, right? That you might be playing a character with a gender than you or a character that is much stronger than you or potentially even much weaker. And when you're doing something like bend bars, lift gates, the GM's not like, all right, now flex for me and let's see what you got. No, no you yeah. simply arbitrate that with the roll of the dice. But with mental stats, especially with figuring things out, noticing things, convincing someone, it's hard to be purely objective because the player is offering something in that capacity. And if the player forgets something, um, sometimes that simply is just ported over into the game. And some games have ways of sort of mitigating this, like a flashback sequence or the abstraction of adventuring gear, for example. Like, you might not have thought to bring rope, but your character did. Adventuring gear is there to sort of solve that. Mm -hmm. um, flashbacks and things like Blades of the Dark show that your characters are excellent planners and excellent scoundrels, or potentially excellent in any case. And it, it, it at least separates it from the player. But there are some people that like the challenge of um, themselves having to solve these sort of problems and puzzles through the mouthpiece of a character mm -hmm. and some games are actually written that way i don't remember what the specific system was but i was reading through uh, some sort of osr or retro clone and there was a little chapter right at the beginning when it was talking about the character stats where it said that the physical stats are your character but the you know and then it said charisma in this case re represents your character's um like ability but it does not represent their uh ability to improvise their ability to think on the spot their ability uh, to recall information, that's you. And it said specifically, like, that's the character, because that game was explicitly going for that experience. But some players don't like that. You know, they might be like, I'm not good at, you know, correlating all these pieces of information. Can I just make a roll? And then you feed me something, you know, to the GM, like, give me some, give me a tip, because I rolled well based on my character's instat. Mm -hmm. And that's that's sort of where our problem arises, is where do we draw the line between what can I simply abstract to a character role and when does it become me just sort of pushing along this cardboard cutout of a character and I don't actually have any real meaningful input as a player? Yeah, that is, I think, a really good way to summarize the conflict here is at what point does my convincing tirade as a human impact the guard's willingness to let my orc buy? So here's the question. How do we run our game so that people are comfortable leveraging their personal skills, but in which those aren't the end-all and be-all, which to me is the balance that I typically try to strike. So what I think is the one skill that should matter at the table from the player perspective is role-playing. Like, if you are a skilled role-player, that should make you good at RPGs and, you know, end of story. And I think that there a consideration comes both on the part of the GM and on the part of the character. From the GM's perspective, it's important to be clear and consistent with how you are going to make rulings. If one character gives, you know, a very delightful um, monologue where they're trying to convince a guard to do something and they just sort of improvise on the spot in character this great thing, you might want to just let them have it, right? Instead of just going to a role after that. Mm -hmm. Because they were role-playing their character so well and they actually made a convincing point to manipulate this NPC to do something. Just let them have it because they they basically did the challenge in person. Um, but if then someone else does something similar and you go to a role, um, it kind of makes the players think like, well, what, what am I doing here? Does that even matter? And yeah. is it easier in the future to say like, I talk to him. And from the perspective of the player, it's important to lean into the role playing and don't sit so far back from your character that it's barely even interesting for everyone else to 
uh, imagine what your character is doing because you're not providing anything descriptive at all. You just say, I hit it. You know, you just say, I talked to this guy. Like if you, if you didn't create a character that you're interested in role playing, then why did you create that character? And know your limitations. Like if you're creating a character so disparate from you that it's going to be a difficult challenge to actually embody that character and role play them to any degree. Not, not just that you have to do a good voice or have to know exactly what they would say, but to be able to describe them in an entertaining way then maybe you made a character that's not suitable for you. Um, and that, that, that is the essential skill of it, that um, good role-playing encompasses all those other skills uh, as needed and no more. That a good role-player doesn't have to be an expert tactician, but they have to at least be able to describe something the way an expert tactician might, you know. Totally. I think that that is pretty much how I feel as well. The real player skill in a game like Dungeon World is mostly, I think, about pushing the fiction in directions that are that are directions in which your character can shine. I think that's the real player skill. And I think your example in there of the the long charismatic speech that the that I as GM might be inclined to just allow for. I think I have a different angle on that and I think it's the the angle that the angle that I like to take is the players long compelling speech is really about what move triggers not about what uh not about what the character is saying if a if a character actually gives a good well thought out rationale for why they should be allowed through to me that might be leverage for a parlay role but i don't think i would i would let it through on its own but in that example they're manipulating the fictional positioning there exactly in that example the player has skillfully as the player constructed a situation in which their fictional positioning is improved. And from that fictional positioning, they're able to lean into what their characters are able to do. And that by, by making it part of the fiction, I think we, we help players divorce themselves from their own skills and think about it more in terms of what the characters are capable of doing realistically. Now, I've, yeah. Um, it, it comes down uh, to social contract at the table and uh, in order to like avoid stuff with that because some people really like their personal skills to shine through like as characters or even their level of investment to affect their character i've seen at some tables the custom of uh if a player writes an after action report and report and post it to a blog they, they might be awarded xp for that or if they come to a session like dressed in character or something and they, they chose to get the extra effort they might award xp for that which has nothing to do with their character right and that's just their player kind of going the extra mile to be invested in the game. But some tables, they like the idea that there is a mechanical effect for that because it's a sort of like reward mechanism. And that's fine. Like if the players really get a huge kick out of that and they respond well to it and the, and the GM is clear and concise with and uh, consistent, I should say, with what they're doing, then that's the social contract there. And, yeah. and you're really rewarding what's clearly obviously player skill has nothing to do with Rob the Barbarian's actions this totally. week. And it can Whereas be- at other tables, there's sort of only things in character um, matter, right? And you as a player don't don't get to sway that, which is a different take on it. For sure. Now, I do think I want to bring in one last lesson from the world of Blades in the Dark, as far as this conversation is concerned. And I think it's this concept... In Blades in the Dark, one of the core mechanics is that whenever there's a role, you set position and you set effect. It's a way to make sure that everyone at the table understands what the results of the role are going to be in fiction. If it's a desperate role with limited effect, then maybe it's not the right avenue to take. Similarly, if it's a controlled role, but the effect is standard, you're in pretty good shape. I think that player skill might be a way to push position and effect around in our Dungeon World games as well. To change sort of what the hard move will look like on the other side of the role, or what the player you know, the player description of the result will be on a 10 plus. I, I definitely agree. And we come down to the sort of realization that it's hard to fully separate them and that that's sort of a fool's errand because the game would be very sterile if they were fully separated um, and you were just considering the character skill because being a good player simply often does make mean your character survives more because you thought of things that you wouldn't otherwise have thought of and your character can then attempt them. Because if you don't think about something and don't think to even try it, then 
you know, whether your character has the right relevant stat or not almost doesn't matter because you just, you simply didn't even engage in that situation. Um, and so being a good player involves not just improving the quality of your own characters, you know, actions and how, what interesting things they do, but everyone at the table, because the good character will suggest things to other people, will move the fiction forward, will ask questions of the GM, even beyond the scope of their character, like, oh, mm-hmm. might this place ahead be related to so-and-so's backstory? And the GM's like, oh, that's a great idea, you know, and, and that type of thing can go on. So yeah. I think you have to not just think through your character, but like beyond and around your character. And of course, the other version of the character giving a social using social skills that the player has, but the character would not is the leaning into the dramatic irony of the player knowing how to how to extricate themselves from a situation and the character very strongly not. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of player skill to be found there as well in acknowledging what the character is bad at and leaning into that element of it. It's something that Dungeon World even supports, you know, there's the there's the strategy of leaving wisdom at an eight so that you have your minus one and then constantly being the one looking for trouble and discerning realities all over the place. Because in that situation, you basically have an engine for increasing your XP over and over and over again or getting useful plus ones for your other stats when as you uh, as you ask questions to the GM. I think that watching um, actual plays from groups that are good role players and good improvisers is a way to understand like what the, uh, a true true player skill should should look like. Totally. Because for example, there's the entertaining challenge of playing a character that's very awkward if you aren't, you know, or playing a character that is very, um, you know, has some sort of negative quirk that's constantly bedeviling them that you don't have because you're role playing that. And that is interesting. And um, watching a group that does this well is a way to see that even a negative thing can be played up for your character um, because it's represented on the sheet, even if it isn't represented in your in your person. So totally. Any recommendations, Eamon? Um, I I personally am am fond of the the one shot network. Um, they they have a a lot of stuff going. Um, I'm I. And they, they turned me on to some other groups just because they do a lot of collaborations. There is a group called um, Neoscum that plays through Shadowrun. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they sort of meta joke about how like they, they, they're they so beleaguered by the system because Shadowrun is very uh, sort of tr- – it's, it's traditionally thought of as like clunky or labyrinthine just because sometimes you have to roll like 12d6 you know, for this action or like 15 – six-sided die wow. like in these massive dice pools and there's very just intricate stats and everything but um the group is just so gonzo and like they they lean into the characterization so far that it is it's some of the most funny audio fiction i've ever listened to i have mm-hmm. i have some i have had an experience where i was listening to it one time and had to pull the car over to the side of the road because my laughter was interfering with my ability to safely drive awesome and I think that's one of those cases where the player's skill is making each other and the audience laugh. And the oh, character yeah. skill is, you know, whatever it happens to be, is tied to the characters themselves. So on a more subdued level, I always want to shout out friends at the table because they're the people that got me into the tabletop gaming space in the first place. Um, as a group, that cast does a spectacular job of thinking about what their characters would believe, not just what they as players believe or would do. Yeah. And they are really consistent about that. One of my, one of the things that really stuck out from the third season in which they're playing Dungeon World is the paladin character straight up, or the player playing the paladin straight up saying, oh, Hadrian doesn't know he rolled a five. And immediately leaning hard into the, the thing that the players obviously knew was a bad idea because of the, the nature of the fictional circumstance in which they started from that. And to me, that's a huge player skill is being willing to let go of your character and let them fail in dramatic and painful fashion. Well, I'm really glad we had this conversation, Eamon. I think it's good that we're on the same page and that now our audience knows what page we're on when it comes to this question of what are what player skills are valuable and how do they translate into success at the table? Absolutely. And I, I think that it's the best of both worlds, right? Because if your character's skilled at something... And uh, on paper, we want to see that. And a good role player will bring that to the forefront, which is both the character skill and the player skill working in concert. For sure. Um, 
So with that in mind, I think, am I correct in saying that it's time for us to make our move into picture this? I think you are correct. Wonderful. Now, I have something for you to picture this week, Arthur. Uh-oh. And I had a terrifying sensation of almost forgetting it because I, we're, we're looking at a shared Google document with our mm-hmm. show notes. And I wanted it to be a surprise so I didn't write down anything. And I got so engrossed in our conversation about player skill versus character skill that I almost forgot what I had. But I just remembered it. So, you ready? Uh, always, Amen. So, we were talking um, with, I was talking with my invisible son group as we were doing character creation. And I don't know how we got on this topic. But I started just pitching out of nowhere the idea of a campaign where everyone starts at level 20 or level 10 or whatever it would be in your system. Um, I think in Invisible Center would be like sixth degree in your current order or whatever. So everyone starts at max level and the boss is like already dead and the world's already saved. And you're basically going through the campaign like in reverse. And every time you gain experience, you're actually subtracting experience. Your character is becoming less and less adept as you sort of undo everything that your characters did um this could be you know taken to the extreme and a whole campaign could be structured around that where the characters eventually become unskilled like level one or level zero theses or it could just be the conceit of a certain dungeon room where you have to like unsolve this puzzle or unkill this monster Mm -hmm. um, if you want to just narrow it down or you could potentially even uh, take it in other directions what do you got arthur that is cool as heck i really like the um I really like the nonlinear storytelling approach generally. It's something that I find really appealing about not about games that aren't afraid to embrace nonlinear time. The way that you're framing that as a definite as there being a definite endpoint and then things that happen along the way, very fun. Now, is this something that you have uh, that you have actively tried, or is this th- is this a concept that you're leaning towards? It's it's very it's very nascent. It's an embryonic uh, sort of uh, idea that I, I just thought of a couple days ago. Cool. Um, but I, I'm interested to see like how it could be applied because it hits on the sort of interesting chronologic that can be really fun to try to uh, make sense of in a game space. Yeah. I've seen this sort of this sort of flavor of this done in different ways. There's a um, uh, a web comic called Goblins in which one of the characters has a sword. That whenever he's done using it, um, instead of putting it in a sheath, uh, a tiny portal opens and a hand comes out and grabs the sword. And it's basically himself in the future, like when he needs it. So he's constantly like passing the sword off to himself oh, that's in fun. a future conflict. So like when he enters into battle, he just reaches out his hand mm-hmm. and his hand sort of disappears through a space and he pulls out the sword. Like so he's kind of constantly handing it off to himself. Cool. But that um, it's not just a flavor thing. Um, the the fact that there's that. Uh, portal there can like cause problems so, like one time he was trying to be stealthy and he like reaches for his sword and the portal opens into like a loud situation from, like mm. where he's grabbing his sword from yeah and it kind of got him caught and cool. so there's that that's the sort of uh, idea of this chronologic being applied just to a single item um whereas it can be applied to like a whole like puzzle or whole room um in the uh red and pleasant land um supplement which is a I, I think it's from the folks over at Limitations of the Flame Princess. It's a, I think any award winning, it, it's won several RPG awards for just being a good source book, but it's basically an Alice in Wonderland themed campaign world. And there are descriptions of rooms that you can encounter in the castles there where like you walk into the room and you see like a dead version of yourself on the other side of the room that like rises and like the darts fly out of it. So you basically like witness the trap of the room going in reverse and if you advance too far into the room, you like switch places with your double. Yeah, and, like, I, th- become I, th- the one. I think we've talked about this exact setting uh, before, this exact yeah. design before. It's something that, um, yeah, something that I think is really cool. Here are my concerns about this, and I'm curious to see how you'd address it. Go for so, it. So first off, how do you handle character stakes? What does what does you know losing health look like if you're working your way backwards through time? Um, especially if you're doing so for the course of an entire adventure or an entire campaign. You know, is it a situation where everyone starts kind of wounded and we're finding out how they got hurt along the way? Or is everyone at full health? To me, the the player investment angle on it is a little... It, it becomes a trickier needle to thread. Not impossible, but trickier. So it, I think it would depend on the uh, the fictional positioning and the narrative framework of why this is happening in the first place. 
as I'm sort of thinking about it now, I like the idea of um, you're on the brink of saving the world or like on the brink of completing your adventure, but there's the threat that all your progress will be taken away. And um, per, for example, maybe there's a curse that got put on you that uh, your past is going to be erased and you'll, you have to sort of rediscover your own past. Mm. And unless you go through that process, your future will be invalidated. So all of the work that you did um, will be undone on its own unless you undo it yourself uh, and, and, and thereby like cement it. Cool. So, yeah, I, I like that angle of rediscovering something that has already happened in order to understand your current situation, especially if you frame the starting point as being incredibly ambiguous. You know, oh, yeah, this person's dead. I, I'm almost getting like a memento vibe if you've seen that where you're playing yes, out scenes in reverse order. But the scenes themselves take place in forward progress, and each of them reveals a new truth about what's going on. And Memento is a good example of what the stakes could be, because, um, spoiler for Memento. Well, um, mm, I would say, well, let's, maybe let's, let's not, let's not spoil even it. spoil it. If you know Memento, you know what we're about to talk about, and you've already learned the lesson that we have to tell. If sure. you haven't seen Memento, go watch it. It's easy to, to find, and it's also, I, I would it's say, it's, just, it's totally it's, worth watching. It's worth watching. Even if you don't like it, still worth watching. Yeah, totally. Also, it's got the, Cypher um, in it. Joey Pantaleone. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. forgot about that. I'd say one of the stakes um, could be what your past is. Because I like the idea that if you were going to run a campaign like this, you strongly encourage the players not to have any backstories and just to have a description of what your character looks like now. And we don't know where they came from. We don't know, you know, like what their parents were like, what their family's like. We're going to find that out all in reverse. And based on the roles, they could either be coming from a great circumstance or a terrible one. Um, and we're sort of finding that out. Um, and so the stakes are, is your past horrible? And uh, did you contribute to that horror, right? Um, and do you have the power to like change it while you're going in reverse? And I think that's where like, if this campaign was gonna be done and if it was gonna be very successful, uh, those would be the types of, um, themes and moments that would make or break it yeah now for me i kind of want to try it for a one shot yeah i think see, i like, think a one shot's a great way to handle this there's a version of merlin where this exact framing is the way that that merlin is understood where merlin understands the world in reverse the first time you meet him is the last time he meets you and oh yeah i think doctor who in yeah, one of the seasons had a similar they, they definitely have i think the uh the river song stuff leans into oh, that yeah, pretty hard timeline is inverse to his or yeah. something um i think that's a really fun idea Eamon. i really want to hear how it goes so please do report back i think what i'm going to do is try to work that into a uh, a location or like a certain uh scenario in invisible sun and just like in in a sort of capsule environment to like put the players through mm -hmm. it very cool well i think then i think it's time for us to move into listener emails Eamon. Let's do it. Let's check that inbox. Very cool. So I've got the inbox in front of me. And this week, we've got an email from Fred. Fred has uh, some interesting things to say about festivals and mini games. sort of thinking back to our social, social situation episode in which my highlight was a drinking game that my players played in character. And Fred has the following to say. Hi. After listening to the episodes about festivals and mini games, I was kind of sad you didn't go much in depth about connecting the two. Festivals, balls, and all other kinds of happy social events are my go-to occasions for including some kind of minigame. My players still vividly remember the fencing contest on a table filled with food, where the goal was to force your opponent to knock over as much of the table as possible. I think that introducing different mechanics in a festival setting is a good way to introduce out-of-the-box mechanics in-game, and it signals to the player that it is more of a fun time. My usual approach to minigames is to grab some cool mechanic from some other game and vaguely connect it to current systems, so we are still basing it on character skill. In the fencing example above, we used a dice pool mechanic with Durak, a traditional card game popular in Poland and other post-Soviet countries, style attack and defense. How many dice you roll was based on attributes, and this was stolen from a Polish RPG, Monastir. I wish I had more examples ready, except obvious stuff like playing cards in a casino, but I am typing this email quickly and my mind is blank. But I am curious what other minigames you would use in festival situations, what mechanics from other games you would transplant to achieve those. Anyway, always happy to listen to the podcast. Keep up the good work, Fred. So, Fred, thank you so much for writing in. This is an awesome question, and I think this is an opportunity, Eamon. Why don't we talk through some minigame ideas and some ways to inject 
out of uh, out of the ordinary fun into our campaigns i've got a couple off the top of my head from my own gaming history i'm curious what do you have anything in the same vein i'm trying to think along the lines of fred's emails things that could specifically go well uh in the theme of a festival Mm -hmm. um i had seen a while ago someone made a post about using uh the deck tet with dungeon world and the deck tet is a a deck of cards that someone somewhere developed that's used to play like whole sets of games that the traditional poker deck can't because it has some special features. Like I think that it's possible for cards in the deck tet to be of multiple suits and things like that. Um, it's, it's basically just like a, a different deck structure. And they were using this in the context of Dungeon World to be like the basis of a specially constructed deck of wonders where like based mm. on the suits of the cards that you drew, like certain powers would be granted. Um, so I like that type of idea where you're leveraging some other mechanic and physically having some sort of deck at the table uh, adds an extra sort of layer and extra tension. Yeah, for, extra like, immersion. Physical drawing. Yeah, ca- cards have a long history of going well with RPGs in different different avenues. Totally. Um, I'll, I'll think I'll think of more, but yeah. I want to hear one of yours. So I've, I've got a couple off the top of my head, and these are a little bit out there, but I'll try to draw them back in. I'm thinking about um, Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor, and how at the very beginning of that game, it teaches you stealth mechanics by having you sneak up on your wife and give her a kiss. And I think, to me, that is almost um, like a mini game that utilizes core mechanics of the actual game to introduce them in a different way. So in Dungeon World, we might have a situation where they we're in a festival. The band strikes up a jaunty tune, sort of something that we would think of as a tango, lots of sharp violin and and really staccato sounding notes and rhythms and the uh and the prince gestures over to you and suddenly it's the two of you on the dance floor and now we have a dancing mini game where we can play it like a combat situation using some of the same roles that we would ordinarily ordinarily use uh in a toe-to-toe duel except in the context of this dance it takes on a different tenor to it and we can attach all kinds of other fun stuff to that as well You'd essentially be rolling hack and slash in some way. It could be. There. It could be a situation where the the tango is sort of a violent one, um, or it could just be something where we're using the same words to describe, you know, a one on one swashbuckling pirates of the Caribbean style duel as we are to describe the interplay of feet and hands that you and the prince are undertaking. Okay. Um, on a slightly different vein here, I think this is a, a another time that I have had players participate in something out of the ordinary happened in a longer dungeon world campaign that i ran uh last year well mm, yeah last year it was wow how time flies um where the players this was a planet hopping galaxy spanning dungeon world game and the players were taking a much needed vacation after saving a planet from a mass from a magical terraformer and on this vacation they were they were basically hanging out at this beautiful resort moon and having just a lovely time surfing and playing beach volleyball and doing the usual beach episode stuff that you might see in a TV show. And so we had a handful of, not exactly mini games, but a handful of roles around beach activities like surfing. You know, oh, are you going to wipe out or are you going to you're going to hang 10, dude? Um, that, that kind of stuff. But then the actual mini game ended up being sort of the core mechanic for this miniature arc which was that a uh, a meteor hits the moon and then in the distance a fin comes from the crash site and suddenly it's revealed that a massive monster is wading its way towards the land and disrupting the beachgoers lovely vacations and so the PCs have to don massive suits of magical armor and fight one on one against the enormous monsters and i uh, basically had them go through a Pacific Rim-style mechs versus kaiju adventure, which had sort of a minigame feel to it, where they were learning how to use the the new mechanics and the new mechs that they had access to. And, and it was sort of contextualized exclusively within the adventure they were having. But it still had that sort of layer of, oh, this is a fun place. We're here on vacation. We're here to protect our vacation. So sort of a different approach to a minigame, but still a, a mini game, nonetheless i would say i have one more example that could potentially go for a festival um i had the idea that you as a gm draw out a grid kind of like a tic-tac-toe 
um, board that could either be, you know, three by three or potentially even more. And this represents like the crowd in like a, a social situation, like in a ball or in a party. And you have like one uh, NPC that's in each square, or, like in your mind. And uh, the players are racing through the squares and trying to um, talk to different people there, either to try to find out their identity, try to find out like, we're looking for Lord Vryn, like, where is he? And like talk to people, like, are you Lord Vryn? Are you Lord Vryn? Or if they're trying to like canvas support. And so like some sort of role is required in each box. And if that goes successfully, if it like is the desired outcome, they get to like mark an X in that box while some sort of uh, opponent is going through in reverse. And basically they're trying to um, control more of the board than their opponent. You could either do that with tic-tac-toe rules, they're trying to get three in a row. You could do that with territory um, rules where they're just trying to fill as many boxes as possible. Or you could do that in sort of connect four mm-hmm. um, rules where like it's sort of cascading yeah. and they can they can only fill certain boxes under certain conditions. Hey man, are you familiar with a board game where where two players are are playing as two different colored tiles and the tiles can flip over from one color to the next? And Othello. Othello, yes. To me, Othello was a really cool way to do this, where you and an opponent are vying for control of the social situation on an Othello-style board where the people you talk to talk to people, and there's a cascading impact of of any given move that completely changes the nature of the board. And then suddenly you have a corner, and your opponent does not, and you win. I don't really know how to play Othello, though, so use it at your I, own risk. It's, it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to learn, yeah. hard to master. I think that's the One of those ones, yeah. Well, thank you, Fred, for your email. I Now I've got my head erasing for new mini games to introduce to my existing campaigns. I think it's a great way to keep things shaken up. And I actually was just uh, was just reflecting on that drinking game uh, mini game in the context of my Blades campaign. And that was such a cool way to do like a combination of exposition and character bonding and get some backstory in the mix. It was, it was a real fun time. One suggestion I would have for you, um, you intrepid GMs and players as you go out there to your own tables is uh, not to foist something like that on the group to be like, and now we're doing this for an hour. Oh, totally. Um, and just like have something in your back pocket. Like if they're like, oh, like that doesn't sound that interesting. Like, mm-hmm. like pose the idea to the group. Like I was thinking that we represent this situation in this fun and novel way. And uh, if the group turns it down, like just take that gracefully yeah. and, and go on. And when it happens that the group says, hey, can we change the way we're playing this to reflect this other game that we're familiar with? You know, one of the things as GMs that we can do skillfully is manage that expectation and then say yes to our players when they want to do something weird. Yeah. And that's um, from a technical level is the hallmark of a really good uh, GM in a given system is if you're comfortable in the system that you can arbitrate weird things like that. Totally. You know, that like I think in Dungeon World, it's easy to have the concept of hold expend over many things. Like whatever the players are doing, whatever weird system of rules that they're asking you to leverage, just have them accrue hold and just let them spend it for a discrete effect. Yeah. And you're basically playing a Dungeon World version of something Totally. Else. You can spend one hold to add an X to the tic-tac-toe board. Great. Yeah, um, very cool. Well, I think that's going to cover it for today. Thank you, Eamon, as always, for joining me on this fun, fun time play to find out. If you enjoyed this episode and want to join the conversation, head on over to the Dungeon World Discord, where we keep the podcast channel a-hopping. In particular, right about now has never been a better time to participate in that channel with our new character contest. We announced this on the live episode last week, and we are going to be saying more about it as time goes on. But in case you missed the announcement post on the Discord, the system is simple. Send us an email to our show email address, which is playtofindout at protonmail.com, with a character sheet filled out to as closely as possible resemble a character from fiction. It doesn't have to be a fantasy character. You know, Gimli is cool, but I'd also love to see an Agent Smith, for example. And... Let us know uh, who the character is supposed to be and what clever ways you have undertaken recreating them within the Dungeon World core playbooks. Take as many levels as you need, but be be aware that we'll be looking at that. You know, if someone can do a really convincing recreation of someone in two levels, we'll look at that very fondly as compared to something that takes nine, depending on the quality. Arthur, are we are we allowing um, renaming of the moves like it? Uh... For, for someone to like fictionally signal like what they're trying to do. I would love like for, for people to explain that separately outside of the context of the character sheet. 
Okay. Um, leave the character sheet as is, and then say, "Oh, I'm taking fuel. Give me fuel. Give me fire." For example, um, because I think it encompasses this trait of the original character. Rationale will help us make a make a decision on, on these things. Okay. Um, very cool. And on top of that, feel free to hit us up on Twitter at play number two. Find out. And also. I, well, hang on. I think I guess that's all the social media we, we have. Very cool. Well, you can email yeah, us. Yeah, you can email us. But again, that's play to find out at protonmail.com or yeah, protonmail.com, which is a P-L-A-Y-T-O-F-I-N-D-O-U-T. But with that in mind, I think that'll do it for us today. Feel free to drop reviews on iTunes. Feel free to send us email and say we're doing a great job. And we'll look forward to hearing from you in the upcoming weeks. But that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'm Arthur or Art Projects. And I am Eamon or Voidlight. And watch out for O-Tubes. Yes, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.